During the 1 Corinthians 15's reading, Courtney looked over at me and said, you're going to preach on this? This is craziness. So with those words of confidence, I plunge in. This is actually the third week, for those of you who've not been here with us, the third week that we've been in 1 Corinthians 15, and there's one more to come. And I'm grateful for spending four weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's great treatise on the resurrection. I'm grateful to dwell on it for four weeks. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We confess it in the creed every single Sunday. But it actually rarely dominates our thinking. It rarely changes the way that we approach life. It's like a side note in the faith to us. After all, when was the last time you considered the resurrection when you were wrestling with whether or not you should take a particular job? When was the last time you wrestled with the, inner, the resurrection? The last time you were wondering how to love your neighbor? If those questions mean not, or seem nonsensical to you, that's my point. We have a hard time understanding how to integrate the resurrection with the rest of our faith. Let it change us and dominate our thinking. We don't know what to do with it all the time. The apostles weren't like this, by the way. The resurrection absolutely dominated their preaching, their letters. They saw it integrated with everything else. It transformed everything. It was central to their understanding of all of the scriptures. It was central to their understanding of life and how to live. And so it's good for us to plunge in and rest in it for four weeks. And my hope and prayer today is that the truths of the resurrection begin to bleed out into the other areas of life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is dealing with a church that was actually actively questioning this doctrine. Is it even true? And he grows, goes to great lengths to prove it to explain it, to justify it, and to show how it changes everything. He actually, in this chapter, goes so far as to say that if the resurrection is not true, your faith is in vain. If it's not true, you are most of all people to be pitied because you put your hope in a place where there is no hope. But of course, in this chapter, he declares it is true. It's not just a story, it's true. And he says there's more than 500 people who met and talked with the resurrected Jesus. And he goes on a side note to say, and they are still alive. In other words, challenging the church in Corinth, if you doubt it, go talk to the witnesses. Go talk to them. Ask them what they saw. We, of course, don't have the ability to go talk to those 500 we don't have that luxury. But the testimony is no less secure because we can look back at 2,000 years of human history and say, indeed, the resurrection has transformed everything. Billions of lives transformed by the resurrection. The greatest empire in the history of the world undone and flipped over by a group of peasants because of the power of the resurrection. If it's not true, it's the greatest hoax the most successful hoax that's ever been pulled off. But of course, Paul's declaration is it is true and it changes everything. We step in in verse 35 to a dispute that he's answering. He's addressing a protest, someone who says, how are the dead raised? 
With what kind of body do they come? We can hear the mockery, the sneer behind the question. They're asking what? Does a corpse come back to life? It walks out of the grave and it lives again? We can hear the mockery. What about those teeth that I've lost? Paul, will I get those ones back? Will the wrinkles be taken away? Will I still smell? We can hear the mockery behind their question. We can hear them saying, listen, I don't want to live for 500 years in this body, let alone for all of eternity. That's so crude, so unspiritual. We can hear their mockery, their sneers. It's actually highly unlikely that any of y'all have ever actually worried about this question. It's honestly probably never even crossed your mind. We wouldn't think this way. But Paul's answer has so much value for us, even if it's a question we've never thought to ask. His answer, my prayer this morning, his answer this morning will challenge us. It'll convict us. It'll correct us. It'll clarify things for us. My ultimate prayer is that his answer to this question would give us hope. Would give us hope. So we begin as he addresses this question, how are the dead raised? What kind of body? Come on, Paul, you can't expect me to believe this. And he steps in with a thunderous, you fool, you fool. It seems harsh to us, but it shows how little he thinks of their sneering argument. He says in the next few verses, in effect, you don't have to go beyond the garden to know the answer to your protest. You don't have to go beyond looking up at the sky to know that your protest is foolish, is silly. He says no one plants an acorn expecting another acorn to pop back up out of the ground, a reanimated acorn. That's not the way nature works. He says something else springs up. Something that is an acorn, but is like it's so totally transformed that we'd say it's not even an acorn anymore. Something else totally springs up. An oak tree. This is the way nature works. Did you expect if you put a tomato seed in the ground that a rotted tomato seed pops up back up out of the tomb? Nature answers your question. He said the resurrection is like that. An earthly body gets planted. But it's not a corpse that pops back up and just gets reanimated. It's something totally different that comes out. And yet it's the same being. This is the beauty, the wonder of this analogy that he offers. The acorn is both the tree and yet utterly transformed. Why would you expect differently with the resurrection? God's written this pattern in na nature. And he's not going to resuscitate your corpse any more than he resuscitates acorns. Something new, totally transformed, and yet the same being will come forth. If that doesn't make you start to go, whoa, whoa, there's something here, something beautiful, wake up. He turns then to the animals. God doesn't give them all the same bodies, does he? He doesn't give them all the same flesh, does he? They all have a flesh and a body appropriate to their station, their time, their place. And he says, the resurrection body, why would you think it would look just like the one you wear around right now? Why would you think that it would feel just like the one you have on right now? 
its body will be appropriate to his station. And then he turns to the heavens. He says, look at the sun, look at the moon. He says, do you despise the moon because it has a lesser glory than the sun? Do you despise the moon because it's not quite as bright? And he says, of course not. You recognize that each one has its own place, its own role, its own brilliance, its own glory. And so he comes at the end of these three arguments to verse 42, and he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. In other words, like the seed, it will be the same being, and yet it will be totally transformed, almost unrecognizable. By the way, that begins to explain why the disciples had such a hard time recognizing Jesus at times after the resurrection. It's like a seed. Or like the animals, it will have a form and a body that fits the purpose that God's given it at that moment in time, in that place. Or like the sun, it's going to surpass its former state, the moon, surpass it in brilliance and glory, be so much greater than it, so outshine it, that you will wonder why you ever bothered to worry about the lesser version, why it ever concerned you. This is his answer to the person who says, how crude, a reanimated corpse. He says God's written it into nature. You can see the answer all over the place. Like I said, this is an answer to a question that we've probably never asked. But I say now that this answer can correct us. It can clarify errors that we fall into, and it can give us hope. And that is my prayer this morning. It offers correction to two errors that humanity is perpetually making with respect to our physical bodies. I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit trail because it's just too much fun. It corrects these two ditches that we tend to fall into when we consider our physical lives and our bodies. And I'm going to call one of the ditches one of the errors, the Star Wars error. The other ditch on the opposite side that we tend to fall into, I'm going to call the cooking show error. And if that hasn't gotten your attention, Star Wars versus cooking shows, I'm out of tricks. The Star Wars error. We're perpetually pulled towards this over the scope of human history. Somebody brighter than me noticed that in the first three original Star Wars, episodes four, five, and six, in the first three original Star Wars, the body is conspicuously absent. Think about it. The characters never eat. They never sleep. They have no bodily passions. In fact, the way of the Jedi is to get rid of all bodily passions. The clothing is all drab, white, gray, black, brown. There's no color in the series. The only place that you see bodily passion and color is in the non-human species, like the Ewoks. Humans live an entirely bodiless existence, or they're supposed to. Even the weapons are bodiless. There's no bullets or steel on the swords. It's just a beam of light. There's no blood when a stormtrooper gets killed. There's no value on the physical life itself. They die left and right, and you're not supposed to grieve. It's a bodiless existence. The body is despised. It's forgotten. It's neglected. 
On the other hand, you have the ditch that is the cooking show error. And in the cooking show era, and by the way, please don't hear me saying you shouldn't watch Star Wars or cooking shows. I'm just using them as examples. In the cooking show era, the body is everything. Bodily pleasure is all that matters. The taste, the feel, the smell, the sights. The only thing that matters is bodily pleasure. Bodily existence is everything. These are the two errors that humanity is tempted towards. The body means nothing, neglect it, despise it, reject it, or the body means everything, devote all of yourself to it. You could see those same errors in a university professor, mind in the clouds, thinking about ideas, the only thing that matters is the life of the mind, completely forgetful, unaware that he or she is wearing mismatched clothing, doesn't even notice what the food is at lunch because he or she is so consumed by the thoughts going on. The life of the mind is everything and the body forgotten. Compare this to the NFL athlete or the model where the perfection of the body, even in, either in power or beauty, is everything, perhaps never even thought a thought in their life, one for whom the body is forgotten because of the life of the mind is everything, and the other for whom the body is everything, everything. You can see this, and I hope you begin to understand it. We have these two extremes. The temptation to either neglect or to despise our bodily existence or to think that this, what I feel, what I experience in this body is all that matters. We could spiritualize those two errors. Spiritualize the error where the body is nothing. The hermit in the cave, rejecting all of human society. The only thing that matters is cultivating a perfect presence of the Lord forgetting the needs of those around, taking the body is nothing to the extreme. On the other side, in the other ditch, you can see the social activist Christian. The only thing that matters is meeting the needs of the poor, giving them food. We're drawn to these two errors, one or the other. By the way, if you wonder where our society is, we lurch much closer to the error that is the body is everything that what I experience in this body is the only thing that matters. We lurch closer to that in our society, but different times and different places we've swung back and forth. This passage does not let us live in either one of those ditches. It doesn't let us live in either one of those positions. If I can sort of take Paul's analogies and use them, it's like he's saying you cannot despise the seed because that's what the plant is going to grow from. You can't despise and neglect the body. But he's also saying you should not pretend like the seed is the plant. A new thing will come that is greater than the thing before. In other words, we should not think that our bodily needs are the most important thing. But neither should we act like they don't matter and neglect them. Our bodies and even their needs matter to God because he created them. But they aren't the most important thing because they will be transformed in the resurrection. The earthly body has its glory, its value. It's like the moon. But it will be outshone by the sun, which has much greater glory. If y'all wondered why I chased that rabbit trail that far, it wasn't just so that I could bring up Star Wars. The application points of what Paul is describing are absolutely astounding. Meeting the physical needs of my neighbor 
without seeking to unite them to Christ is like preserving the seeds that I would put in my garden, yet never planting them. And everyone would say, what's the point? And yet, trying to evangelize them while ignoring their physical needs is like letting the seeds rot and then wondering why they don't bear fruit when I plant them in the garden. You see how it goes? We don't get to live in either error where we reject the body or we worship the body. This runs through so many places in our lives. And this is what I mean by letting the resurrection transform everything. What if we approached physical health like this? You don't get to neglect the seed, but you also don't get to believe it's the only thing that matters. What if this is how we approach taking care of the earth God created? You don't get to neglect it, but you also don't get to worship it and think it's the only thing that matters. You see all the application points, all the places where what Paul is describing changes how we think. This is what I meant at the beginning by the fact that for the apostles, the resurrection changed everything. How you approach your neighbor, how you plant a garden, how you choose a job, it changes everything. Another correction that this passage offers, one that perhaps close, cuts a little bit closer to home. And by the way, this is the one personally that I was wrestling with this week. One that cuts deep in our hearts is the correction that it offers when we realize that it's pretty easy to forget the resurrection in our prayer lives. Let me explain. If you can imagine two baskets, imagine a basket that's called this life. Imagine a basket that's called the resurrection life. Which basket are your eggs placed in? Which one bears all the weight? Which one is the place where you hope for all the fulfillment to come? We are constantly immersed in the experience of the this life basket. And it makes sense that we would long for this to be the place where all fulfillment comes true. We slip into the sense that every prayer needs to be answered in this life, in the here and now. It's an effective denial, and at least, or at least a forgetting of the resurrection. It gives rise to distorted versions of the gospel. If you've ever felt the sense, if God really loved me, he would answer this prayer. You know what I'm talking about. If you've ever felt the sense of, if only I had more faith, perhaps this would come true. You know what I'm talking about. If you ever thought, if I were a better Christian, God would show up and fix this thing in my life. You know what I'm talking about. Too much has been placed in the basket that is the this life basket. It's difficult to live with parts of life unfixed, right? It's difficult to live with parts of life still broken. It's difficult to live with parts of life still full of pain. We want our weaknesses. We want our shame. We want our fragility taken away in this life. And when it doesn't happen, we assume that there must be something wrong with us. Our faith isn't strong enough. We don't know how to pray. Sometimes we even come to the conclusion that God just must not be listening to me. Maybe he doesn't answer prayer. Maybe he's not even real. 
we've placed too many eggs in the this life basket. Listen to the correction of this passage. It is in the resurrection that you will be healed. Hear that again. It is in the resurrection that you will be healed. This does not mean, it's really important to be precise here, that does not mean that God does not answer prayers in this life. Let's not swing and fall into the other ditch. He does. He answers prayers and brings healing physically, spiritually to people. He does answer prayers, but the Bible consistently portrays those answers as first fruits of what's to come. First fruits, appetizers, things that keep us going in faith because the final and full fulfillment will be in the resurrection. This means that we don't give up on praying right now. God is at work in this pre-resurrection life. But this passage actually enables us to understand why everything is not dealt with in the here and now. There is a transformation coming. In other words, the resurrection is the place where we can actually experience a full and final answer to our prayers. This means that we can pray with unfulfilled longings. Can you imagine that? Praying with unfulfilled longings, not resigned, like, oh, I'll just never get that. It'll never come true. God won't come through. Not resigned. Not self-deprecating. There must be something wrong with me. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't have enough faith. But instead, content. Content because we actually know where our deepest brokenness will be healed. Content and hopeful because we know when the answer is coming. Can you imagine that sort of contentment where you could actually pray, Lord, I long for this to be healed right now, but I know that it will be healed in the resurrection. But because you're good, I'm going to ask you for you to do it sooner than the resurrection. But if you don't, I'm not going to lose hope because I know it's coming. And there. Can you imagine that sort of peace in the prayer life where we could honestly say, I need you to do this for me. But we also acknowledge that I don't need to despair if it doesn't happen tomorrow because the resurrection is true. This passage cuts through and corrects our prayer life. It may be difficult to live with that sort of contentment. But my belief is that if we let this sink into the depths of our hearts, we might begin to learn to walk that way. The reality is, is that something is coming. Something is coming. We all know that life is difficult, that it's full of pain, that it's hard, that it's full of heartache and loneliness. Something is difficult in this world. There are truly moments of glory, of beauty, of love. There are moments where God breaks through, where his spirit testifies to us that we are actually accepted and beloved. There are moments when the darkness is pushed back, but so oftentimes it feels like it's just a pale moon shining in the darkness. And there's times when it feels like the darkness might actually win, when that's all that we can see. But Paul's testimony here is that the resurrection is coming. The pale light of the moon will give way to the glorious blaze of the sun. The resurrection is coming. There is a glorious life, one that is both the same as the life that you have now. You will not become a different person, but will be so totally transformed that you almost won't recognize it. That glorious life 
is actually offered to you. We can't imagine what it would look like. We can't imagine it any more than a person that if you gave them an acorn they'd never seen an oak tree could imagine what the acorn might become. We can't imagine it. But this is the promise that what you will be, what you will be, the glory of God coursing through your veins, the power of God wrapped around you, the light and life of God enveloping you, that what you will be is so glorious that the best that this world has to offer will seem like shadows in comparison. The world is full of darkness, but Paul is testifying to you that light is coming, that there will be a breakthrough, that the resurrection will occur. Can you imagine this? The darkness from your heart banished completely, every last bit healed and transformed, every weakness undone in the love and mercy of God and turned into strength, every bit of shame washed away. Can you imagine meeting the life giver himself, the Lord Jesus, who says, this, this is what I intended for you. That's what he's testifying. When we hang on to that, like I said, it would begin to change everything. I want to close with Paul's words. I imagine that he almost sang for joy, danced in the room as he dictated these to his scribe. Envision him standing up, getting overcome as he says, what is sown is perishable. And we say, amen, I feel so perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. He says, he's talking about me. It is sown in dishonor but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. He says, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And we say, no wonder I feel like not everything's fixed because I'm still stuck in the natural. But then the spiritual comes. The first man was from of earth, a man of dust, and the second is from heaven. And listen to this declaration in this promise. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. But as, the man, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen.